Hello, disclaimers. Oh, hello. I booked a disclaimer for the start of the show and there's no sign of it yet. What name was it? PeggyMountPod.com Is that the one about the old telly? Yeah, that's right. With the drinking? Yep. And the swearing? That's the one. Okay, I'm sorry, but your disclaimer's running a bit late. He's busy getting stuff slightly wrong for another podcast before you. Okay, well, can you tell me when he's going to be here? The show's about to start. I'm looking at the screen and he's just turning your RSS feed now. (sighs) Right you are, thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Here's what's coming up on our podcast. When I heard there was an animated adaptation, I thought, right, okay, I didn't know what I was expecting. It wasn't this. <laughs> Incidentally, I'm not going to let this go, Ernie mm. Hudson auditioned for the voice of Winston Zeddemore, his own character from the film. He's the only mm-hmm. one of the four to do this right. And mm-hmm. then they give the gig to Arsenio Hall. That guy cannot get a fucking break. It was the summer of 2009... And I was in Ibiza on a dance floor, rocking it all out of me mind on poppers and dancing to a rave version of this. Mint. Absolutely incredible. Exit, stage left. Are you all right? Hello and welcome to another episode of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to rearrange the furniture in the house to discover the most optional angle to view some vintage television from the toilet. Yes, hello to you. Thanks for swinging by for our casual cultural critique of vintage television where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds because here all roads lead to the mountain. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to say hello, or to ask us why we haven't covered your favourite cartoon yet. Before we turn out an inferior product, because you were too distracted and hubristic to accept how problematic the whole thing was clearly going to be from the warning signs at the fucking start, Dr Velvet, I've got to ask, what are you drinking? I remain on the beer. Lovely. Yep. I'm guzzling Night of the Garter Golden Ale... From the Windsor and Eaton Brewery, don't you know? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes well with cheese and snobbery. This, uh, it's 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 nice. It's Abs- nice. Absolutely, tailor pick for yourself then. Right, right. Absolutely, that. Absolutely. <laughs> yourself. I have got a dog on the roof golden ale by Hattie Browns in Dorset. I've been to Dorset. That's what it is. <laughs> All right. On to the first. Of this episode's reviews. Oh, the 80s. Decade of the animation adaptation of the mega franchise. And why not? All the essential elements have already been worked out. The audience is there waiting. So producing a cartoon from a solid, popular, pre-existing format has to be foolproof, right? You'd fucking think so. The Real Ghostbusters was a massively successful animated spin-off from the supernatural comedy of partly the same name, more on that later, created by DIC Enterprises for Columbia Pictures Television and running for five years, seven seasons and 140 episodes. CITV began airing it on Monday afternoons in 1988. 
all of the central crew from the film return, kinda, as they return to save New York from the spectral threats of the afterlife, with a voice cast including Arsenio Hall, Dave Coulier, Frank Welker and Maurice LaMarche. We've watched the very first full-length episode, Ghosts Are Us, in which the lovable Slimer accidentally releases three apparitions from their containment chambers who hit upon the idea to start a rival business clearing up the town's spirits. I was clearing up the spirits by the time I finished this. Right, in the title sequence of this, why does the ghost have to walk around the bins? Does he not know what being a ghost is? Fuck's sake, well, lads, that's not a good start. You're asking the wrong person here because this is another anticlimax, this, along a similar vein to droids. <laughs> this. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Before we before we get into the episode, well, we're, we're still at title sequence level here, right? We get the writers' names for this. Yep. Len Jansen ah. and Chuck Menville. Yep. You, you recognise yep. those names? This yeah, go on. premiere episode of The Real Ghostbusters is penned by the same writing team who brought us key episodes of The Space Sentinels and The Mork and Mindy cartoon. I think it would be remiss of us not to remember that during every single frame of The Real Ghostbusters. <laughs> agreed, agreed. I have no issue with the former because Space Sentinels, as we absolutely covered extensively... Yes, yes. ...is it, superb. Oh, it it's superb. But it's far from perfect. There's plenty right. to take the piss out of in there. By the time you get to Morgan Mindy, yeah, not so good. In a way, Jansen and Menville are like this podcast's recurring cartoon equivalent of Pam Valentine and Michael Ashton. Don't that you think? is exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. Except yeah. I want these two to be on fire so I can put them out by hosing them down with human shit. Right. So we kind of get a, an essence of your angle on this then as well. Yes. Okay. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Now... I do remember, again, once again, I definitely, absolutely remember watching this at its first transmission. Okay. uh, On CITV. Oh, I was a big fan of Ghostbusters, the original movie from 84. Who wasn't? It is absolute nailed-on classic. Yeah. It's literally one of the best films of all time. (laughs) Far, far, far more than the sum of its parts. It is superb. It has never been equaled, not even by its own sequels. That's fine. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now... I don't know what I was expecting when I heard there was an animated adaptation. I thought, right, okay, I didn't know what I was expecting. It wasn't this. <laughs> this is beyond clunky. It feels a bit sort of weirdly rubbery. I don't know. You'd expect it to look more dynamic, bearing in mind the film it's sort of come from, you know. But It's very fine. sloppy. It's very sloppy, this. That's it, yeah. Apparently... It's called The Real Ghostbusters. There is plenty of this on the internet. I'm not going to dig too deep. But apparently it's called The Real Ghostbusters because our old friend's filmation had a live-action yeah. kids sitcom called The Ghostbusters. Three words in 1975. Which I remember seeing. I do, do you remember that? No, I don't remember that at all. And because of the popularity of a sim- this similar sound in film, Filmation were developing a cartoon spin-off in 1986 called The Ghostbusters. Three words. And because that was their yeah. title, this means they were allowed to do this. Yep. And because Filmation sued Columbia over what they thought was their copywriting of three successive words in the English language, Columbia were going to have significant problems using their own title on the TV. So rather than just calling their own 1986 animated show Ghostbusters one word and saying, yeah, but fuck Filmation, they didn't have to do that. They could have used any of the intellectual property from the film which they did own, but someone thought that calling it The Real Ghostbusters was the best idea. So this entire 
show, not just this episode, this entire show, this concept, just starts off with an air of regret. Like when you see Jeff Lynne playing a gig with a big sign behind him that says Jeff Lynne's ELO, and you're like, yeah, yeah. But mate, that's that that was always yours. Who's done this, Jeff? Yeah. Did you upset uh-huh. your own legal team, Jeff? <laughs> right. The more they call this the real Ghostbusters, the less inclined I am to believe them. And they actually write this into the narrative in the episode. They do. Yeah, Slimer being very much the scrappy do of this uh, outing. Reading me notes. Reading <laughs> me notes. <laughs> he's gone to sleep, resting on a button or whatever, because obviously he's a ghost, he can do that. Fine. So yeah, Slimer, he's released these three ghosts out of the containment chambers. For reasons I'm not clear on, they've set up their own rival ghostbusting business. And yeah, mm-hmm. this acts as a sort of meta-in-universe explainer as to the show's title, I guess, really? Because then the Ghostbusters have to start explaining, no, 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 we're the real Ghostbusters, and you're like... But the Ghosts ones, their company's called Ghosts Are Us. You wouldn't have to clarify yeah. your own name if someone came out with an only faintly similar-sounding name. Janine, really? <laughs> okay, carry on. Before we get into the, the actual shambles that is the episode, um, <laughs> the characters... The characters, yeah. Um, I'm, 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 well, first of all, what the fuck? Um, I mean, I sort of get it, right? They want a varied character color palette for younger viewers. Absolutely, both I don't mind merchandising. I, I do not yeah. mind the jumpsuits being different colors. Because Egon knew- Spengler meets Peroxide didn't sit well with me, though. And yet, oddly enough, Spengler is the one who's anywhere remotely close to being his film character. Correct. <laughs> yes, ironically. Um. um Voice-wise, okay, so we've got Lorenzo Music, who's Venkman. Yeah. Now, Lorenzo, at around this time, was also the voice of Garfield. Yeah. And that bothered me because they were still showing Garfield on CITV within the same time frame. So, therefore, in my mind at that time, not that it really mattered, but it was like, well, well, you're Garfield, why are you here? Stance is Freddy from Scooby-Doo. That's getting on my nerves and all. I know that... Uh, I, I just... No... Uh, no, yeah. pick some unknown yep. voices. Pick pick some new voices, man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't matter so much if the characters looked like their live-action counterparts. But, again, with the exception of Spengler, they resolutely do not. So I literally, I, I'm halfway into this, and I'm like, I don't know who's who here. Between, yeah, yeah, yeah. Between Venkman and Stans, I don't know who, uh, yeah, what. Since when was... Which one of them was the fat ginger one in the film? I forget. There's There's been little effort in trying to capture the essence of these four beloved characters from the film. No effort. Apparently it's a another similarly quite messy situation to the title um, as to why they neither look, sound, nor act like their film counterparts. There's actually a much simpler explanation for this, though. Someone at Columbia Pictures Television decided they didn't want the audience to enjoy the show, and right. they, they did that properly. Incidentally, I'm not going to let this go, Ernie mm. Hudson auditioned for the voice of Winston Zeddemore, his own character from the film. He's the only mm-hmm. one of the four to do this right. And mm-hmm. then they give the gig to Arsenio Hall. That guy cannot get a fucking break. That is absolutely He's ridiculous. He's massively shortchanged in his own fucking film. <laughs> what, you, what is even the thinking behind that? You'd have thought, if anything, that was attractive to the audience to have one of the original cast there. You you would think that would be a good marketing thing, wouldn't it? Especially when you look at the rest of the cartoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of the rest of the cartoon. Yeah, what's this all about here? We get these three spirits, these apparitions. Now, from an archetypal perspective, I see the kidnappers out with the Red Hand Gang, do you? 
Oh, yeah, I do, actually. We've got Slug, who's this sort of squat red devil creature. He's the gruff Uh man one and the leader of the gang. Yeah, yeah. We've got Snarg, who's the shrieking woman one, who seems to manifest here like she's made out of bubblegum and pipe cleaners. And then we've got Zonk, who's the big hulk and stupid one, represented as a 15-foot septic wart wearing a nappy. Right. Did this get actually cleared? Or was someone boiling super glue into the writer's room air conditioning? <laughs> Slug, Snug, and Zunk. What we do get, is I, I am actually wanting Ghostbusters here and not the adventures of Slimer filling his bastard face. I get what this little comedy escapade with Slimer is leading to. Yeah. But hell's tits, there's surely a better way than this. <laughs> don't get me wrong, I don't mind Slimer being in this. Again, he's uh... that, you know... He's Scrappy-Doo, he's Godzuki. That's mm-hmm. fine. I understand where the gap is in the script to have a character like that. Yeah, fine, bring him in. It's marketing, there's merchandising. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's everything else around it. The voice yeah. cast of the actual Ghostbusters characters, they sound so fucking bored in this. They do. I swear to God, one of them reads out, continues over halfway through a line. Right. In fact, considering how much I hate the voices in this, you think I'd be happier about that two-minute segment with almost no dialogue? Anyway, predictably, Slimer, as well as Slimer's ineptitude, um, leads to the escape of the aforementioned three ghosts. And uh, they just have... You know, I switched off when they were on the screen. They have no likability at all. N- none of it does. None of this and does. No, well, like you say, it's no, messy, it's sloppy. There's no point of familiarity. There's, it, other than containing the word ghost and busters, there's literally no reason for me to be watching this. No. Nah. Uh, yet this was massive back in the day yes it was um, and I don't know who was watching it because I didn't know anyone who enjoyed it it was probably it was, yeah, it was probably aimed at someone slightly younger than me I get that but my sister's younger than me and I knew some of her friends none of them watched this how was how did this run for so long it made a mint in merch absolute yeah. mint yeah. in merch I get it it sort of lends itself to toys and whatever that's fine there are so yeah. many scenes in this Ghostbusters cartoon which don't feature the Ghostbusters for lengthy periods of time. It feels like DIC animation is getting charged for every second they have them on screen and they'd, yeah. only, they'd only budgeted for six-minute episodes. Yeah. <laughs> so these three ghosts escape and they start causing all kinds of hell on. Um, they're faking hauntings so that they can pretend that they've captured the ghosts, whereas they've actually just caused it in the first place Mm -hmm. they go to the small dwarf hotel kind of a nice touch because it was the waldorf that the ghostbusters went to in 84 right yeah you know i'll I'll, I'll give them that little little nod little nod um this looks bad says zedemore to be fair it looks like a discotheque to me um (laughs) if if i'd pulled up outside there i'd be wondering if boney m was on because i would cut a bit of leather on the dance floor but it doesn't look all that bad but um that's when we establish the real plan of these ridiculous characters Blah, 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 it goes on. We're lured to the factory, some factory, where we meet the Class 10 ghost that looks shit. Is is this before or after they drive over that bridge in New York? I don't York, fucking know. Where there's just, there's like abandoned cars and carnage everywhere, and I'm like, the collateral damage on this bridge when they're, the four Ghostbusters are just driving and flying around doing nothing is immense. These would be civilian casualties at a world news level. Bear in mind they've already yeah. been implicated in some like pretty big news already. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I had completely zoned out by this point. 
the class 10 ghost i would have put stay puffed in just for that one for the first episode yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i absolutely would have just to get everyone on board and go right you're in safe hands you're all right um but what the hell did we get it just toys stacked on top of each other walking around with <laughs> with stupid legs i don't like it anyway slimer saves the day in a, in a way he rubs his ass down the bridge and the class 10 ghost slips like he would slip on a banana peel um <laughs> And falls into the river. Ector 2 blows up, takes him with it. Everyone's happy. Except the audience. Yes. <laughs> this was a massive sack of shit, this. You know what? Stepping back, it's like... I don't think the story writing is necessarily the worst. But the script certainly isn't the best. And the way the animators have interpreted it all feels like the money ran out after they paid for the licensing. So, with that in mind... Dr. Velvet, how many uh, how many spectral pegs would you pin to the ethereal line crossing our backyard? None. They all go in the containment unit locked. <laughs> Not a peg. This is a hurriedly produced franchise and merch cash-in, with no respect for the premise, tone and feel for the original. If any adaptation deserved to go down to the Scooby-Doo formula route, it was this... Yes, yes, absolutely. That's yeah. what I was expecting. Nah. Yeah. A disappointment to me in the 80s and an aberration to me now. No pegs. I think. Ken? Ken, am I right? In... Yeah, he's nodding. That is the first zero pegs we have allowed on the show so far. Well there done. You are. I'm not going to argue. Um, yeah, this is what they've done for their first episode. This is DIC Animation setting out their stall, showing off what they can do, a glimpse of what's on offer. This is someone trying to fill the interview so their dull money doesn't get stopped, isn't it? Three out of nine, and that's been generous, frankly. Fuck me, it is. And in case, you know, we are accused of not being objective here, our studio computer, Ars, um, for the first time, I'm going to ask Ars's opinion. So, Ars, what do you reckon? I'd say that's fairly definitive. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you, Ars. <laughs> Excellent. That aside, the question on every paranormal investigator's lips as they throw caution to the wind, having watched this episode and then purposefully crossed the streams, is... How many fire poles will you slide down before you yodel up the mountain blackout? Well, you know we're always in for a long slog when we do US animation shows, but I can do it in three. character here named Winston is voiced by Arsenio Hall, who starred in Coming to America, as did James L. Jones, who was in something called Star Wars having an argument with Alec Guinness, who spent 1956's Hotel Paradiso married to Peggy Mounts. All right, it might be right, I'll pencil it in. Good, 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 like it. Like and as it. well as you taking the writing and animation crew outside and beating them senseless... I would like you to beat that. Oh. Okay, Slug is voiced here by Ron Masak, who was, of course, the face behind Sheriff Morty in Murder, She Wrote. In a 1993 episode, which also featured Ray Detrice, who appeared in the BBC Two Play of the Week, Stargazy on Zummerdown, with... Peggy Mount. What is she on about? I am delighted that you yep. had such a short and event-free journey 
given mm. the slog it took to get here. Well done. Damn right. And I, I would have a rest, but I can't, because, of course, it is competition time. It's competition time! Oh, yes. So, regular listeners, we'll know the rules by now, but if you've just discovered us, do go back to episode one of this series and catch up on the rules from there, because, frankly, I feel like I'm on a loop. OK, here is your question. There is a poster on the wall of the Ghostbusters dormitory in the fire station, which is clearly an homage. But who's on the poster? Is it Masters of the Universe Skeletor? Disney's Mickey Mouse? Or Remedial Reader's favourite, Inspector Holt? There you go. There's your question. That's it. Get that on your answer sheet. There we have it. Save it till the end of the series. Tell you what. Let's buy some things. Yeah, what's this? KP Disco's the new kind of crisps. What can be new about crisps? We're Disco's, we're Disco's, we're KP Disco's, we're different, we're rounder, will you take a look? We're Disco's, we're Disco's, we're KP Disco's, and we taste as different as we look, look, look. Oh, I see. Singing crisps. Yes, that is new. KP Disco's, we taste as different as we look. The amazing new lolly from Lion's Made, Space 1999. Icy lime flavor outside, oozy red center. Space 1999, with free picture cards from Lion's Made. Six million dollar man, ready to operate and command. Steve Austin is the six million dollar man, complete with the technology to replace his bionic modules. Check him out with the bionic transport and repair station. Control his amazing lifting strength. See through his wide angle bionic eye. The man, his bionic transport that becomes a repair station and a working backpack radio. The things are good. They really, really are good, the things. They are. Some things aren't as good. I'm, I've just, I tell you what, I, I, I'm annoyed, actually. I'm annoyed. And listener, you may be in the same position as me if you have this item. The box set of Knight Rider, the mm-hmm. complete series. Mm-hmm. All 26 DVDs came mm-hmm. my way. Why would you put the the two-hour pilot episode on disc eight? <laughs> Why the fuck would you put that on disc eight? <laughs> I was hammered the other night, and I thought I'm going to start watching <laughs> Knight Rider right from the start. Right. And I, I'm raking about in this box. I dig out the first disc as you would. It's just an episode. I wanted to see the pilot movie. Mm-hmm. Annoyed, mm-hmm. annoyed. It's piss burning, man. Anyway, speaking of piss burning, there's the phone again. Here, mind, Ken, Ken, can you get that? No, can you? Can you get? Don't have it in here. He's pointing the machine. Come on. 
Once again, I'm saying not a word. I'm saying not a word. I'm just cracking on. I don't think that's for us. <clears throat> it isn't. And whether it is or not, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to go straight on to our next show. So let's move on to what on the surface may seem sombre, dour and thoroughly inconceived, but actually is the source of laughter, merriment and a non-cynical snapshot of history. In Loving Memory was a Yorkshire television sitcom from writer Dick Sharples, which began properly on ITV in 1979, ran for 37 episodes over five series. It stars Thora Heard and Christopher Beanie as an aunt and nephew operating a family-run funeral parlour in the 1920s, where times may have been gentler, but existential questions about the meaning of life remain eternal. We've watched the first episode of Series 2 from October 1980, The Outing, in which our central pair reminisce about the previous year's British Undertakers Association annual day out, during which they both reminisced about opportunities that life has given them, as well as those it's taken away. So this was appointment viewing in our house. Okay, that's interesting. It was on yeah. in my house. I watched, I watched more than one episode. Uh-huh. I... So, I mean, clearly my parents were liking it if they had it on every week. You know, they wouldn't... Um, they, they suffered no fills when it came to comedy. Uh-huh. I didn't used to dislike this as a kid, but I could never really connect to it. Sure. There's it's, no reason why you would, really. It's got nothing for... That's it. It's not until now that I'm in my 40s that I can see why. <laughs> uh, it's very much aimed at the adults. and an older audience, actually, because of its period that it's set in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're in the we're in the 1920s here. Got to love a bit of Thora Heard, mind. This plays up to her comic timing very mm-hmm. well. Um, but let's not forget the, the point that I always make. The theme tune is spectacular. It is. It's one of those that I find myself, and I've mentioned this before in past programmes, every now and again a theme tune will come along that I still to this day, some 30 or 40 years later, find myself humming along to every couple of weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. That riff just gets in there. And I kid you not, I absolutely kid you not, it was the summer of 2009 and I was in Ibiza on a dance floor rocking it all out of me mind on poppers and dancing to a rave version of this. Mint. Absolutely incredible. Right? This is the kind of subject where we need Ozzy Bognops in because this is like his specialist subject. He's in Paraguay. All right. At a rave. Yes. <laughs> the music is called Close Up Comedy Number no. 2. It's by Herbert Chapel. It is. Incidentally, the guy who wrote the incidental stings, not the main theme tune, not the iconic main theme tune, but, you know, the music that you hear in between scenes in here, that's Alan Parker, who did the music for Dempsey and Makepeace. That's right. That is a mashup car chase I want to see. There have been car chases in this series. That I do know. I'm, I'm just I'm, a 1920s hearse that keeps breaking down. Meanwhile, yeah. 40 foot behind, you've got Glynis Barber smacking the metal on an XR3i. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> well, and it's because it's set in the 20s, should be wearing um, a bustle or something along those lines, which is full of crack. I still want Michael Brandon leaning out with his grey slacks and an assault rifle. And Spikins with his uh, fawn anorak. <laughs> I'm with you all the way. But yes, yes. But the reason I want Ozzy Bognops here is he'd be able to mm. tell me when this music was written because it is, in my mind, equidistant between Faulty Towers and Johnny Briggs. 
and it's absolutely perfect for what it does. Uh huh. But I don't know if it predates them or. Yeah, I mean, we'll ask Ozzy because let's face it, Ozzy will be able to tell you which pen was used to write the score. Precisely. So, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. The sitcom itself is a great outlet for some subtle dark humour. It is, yeah. Let's have a look at the cast in this episode. It is absolutely magnificent to it be. It is, it is. Thora Heard, I mean, that just speaks for itself. Yes. Christopher Beanie, mm-hmm. now he's made the transition from upstairs downstairs. You know what? It never ceased to fascinate me that mm. Christopher Beanie is called Christopher Beanie and his head is quite bean-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always distracted by that, I think. So, really, the whole show is set around Thora and Christopher, um, auntie and nephew, as mm-hmm. they are. Yeah. They go, the, the, the whole story with this uh, episode is that they are going out on their annual annual outing. A lot of undertakers. Yeah, this seems a bit weird, but that's, it's fine, you know. Bear in mind, they don't meet up at one point and get on a coach. They all have to meet at a place. They're heading towards meeting up, uh, getting the coach. They're, ah, they're right, okay, 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 okay. That's what okay, they do. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, bearing in mind, it's effectively like a works do for rival businesses. Uh, they clearly all fucking hate each other. Why would you do this? Yes, yeah. Well, yes, yes. But it's it, it's hobnobbing and networking and what it, it happens. I, uh-huh. I'm aware it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, on on route to the Sharabang, on the way, they stop and there's a there's a there's a hearse broken down. Mm-hmm. And who should it be but the Pardos, a rival business? Yep. And good lord, it's a who's who. Mr. Pardo is none other than Derek Benfield, also known as Mr. Hetty Winthrop. There we go, there we go. Also, Liz Smith, classic ca- character actress Liz Smith. Erstwhile, Mrs. Cropley of Dibley, uh, the grandma in Royal Family. And uh, in the car, we have none other than Liz Sladen of Doctor Who fame. Yep. This is great, this. This is marvellous. She's engaged to Herbert, who Ivy mistakenly calls Egbert. Uh, <laughs> yes, I like that. That <laughs> that did amuse me somewhat. Actually, listener, do me a favour. Does anybody know anybody called Egbert? It's not a common name, is it? Is it actually a name? It is a name. In real life, I've only ever heard of one person called Egbert. <laughs> There is a cracking exchange between Thora and Liz Smith here, the heads of two rival businesses. All the professional jealousy and snidiness of their characters coming out here so naturally. Oddly enough, as you might imagine, we're getting a lot of exterior scenes here. This was not typical of this show. Yeah, I was worried that we were going to like zip between video and film for the whole lot, which we don't. There is a massive section of this in the middle, which is all film. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's weird because the script is fairly stagey in its setup, and even mm-hmm. more so in its delivery, but it still works because the cast are able to pull it off. Yeah. They're always acting as if the audience is like 30 feet away. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it, it, it is very different, but I, I embrace it in this case. Uh, it really works well with the story. Um, Again, well, essentially what we've got here is a non-cynical period comedy. Yeah. And we do not usually get such pathos. There's a lot of that in here. Mm-hmm. And it works really well. The comedy and pathos in here, they dovetail beautifully. When when mixed with the imagery that we get, it is just like the perfect summers of the 20s. Not that I was there. Um, 
it's a, it's idyllic. It's it's a very different take, and it works. I think it's a bit of a gamble. Uh, and it works. It's certainly a gamble when you bear in mind that this is how they've opened their second series. Yeah. Quick endorsing, then you basically cut to a flashback at 12 months earlier, and they're not flashing back to a stage farce. They're flashing back to them basically sort of walking around. It's all basically character building and emotional exposition. Um, that's quite That's quite a bold move. When you're coming back from you, you remember this? Do you remember like the, the the coffin slipping down the ramp and then the vicar being on fire? Moments like that do exist throughout the series. Yes, we have those those big farcical sort of numbers, um, the big laugh getters, uh, but also in terms of the relationship between Auntie Ivy and Billy, a lot of it focused around Ivy's possessiveness towards Billy. Billy would kind of want to fly the nest an awful lot, and Ivy, there were certain episodes... I can see how that would be a cornerstone of the show, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were certain episodes where Ivy would literally put a a spanner in the works, Mm -hmm. um, to which we would be like, oh, we don't like you for doing that. And it was like, oh, poor Billy, poor Billy. Um, So this episode was quite nice to see another side of Ivy. Is the last episode... the very end of the last episode, the one where he wakes up in a coffin and he's been buried. <clears throat> That's the very. Oh, you have seen it then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's nice to see the other side of of Ivy. It's mm-hmm. uh, we get she's got a past. You know. Yes. Yes. There are some really nice moments in this. It's not like it ever forgets that it's a comedy. So I mean, uh-huh. the Unsworths meet the Pardos because their car breaks down. They goad them into accepting a lift, and then their car breaks down. Mm-hmm. So they just have this succession of picnics and strolls considering what would have happened if this was on bbc one this is the gentlest fast imaginable yeah 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 i don't mind it it's not a criticism but you know well compare this to what was happening four years later with duty free there we go yeah never the twain shall meet we'll cover that in a few years time yes before we wrap things up on this i would just point out we have discussed blackout Mm. that there are certain iconic characters out there similar to Dame Peggy Mount yes. on a similar level on a similar platform yes yes yes, yes. Margaret Rutherford is a- one absolutely yes I'd say Thora Heard can join them definitely yeah and do you know what I don't like odd numbers mm. I'll throw Beryl Reed into the mix as well I think I know where you're going with this go on and as usual I'm going to pick up the ball and run too far with it. So, we go, if you had Rutherford, yeah, put her in yellow, she can be the wizard. Reed, uh-huh. she's a bit mischievous, she can be the elf. Thora Hood is Valkyrie, and Mount as Warrior. What you're describing is our upcoming reboot of Gauntlet. Boom. The four of them... Boom. Batten the fucking hell out of everything in their path through 100 dungeons. Right, we're pitching this. I want the game to be exactly the same as it used to be. New maps, yep. obviously, but top-down, yep, yeah, same yeah. graphics, but with new sprites for the four characters. Yeah. Bang, there yeah. we go. And at the end of a level, I want to see them face on. I want to see these characters. <laughs> uh, in a tavern, clashing goblets together. Yes. That's that's the way forward. We're onto something here. We're onto something. Listener, all we're saying is, in loving memory, watch it when you get the chance to. A beige and sepia-tinged sitcom full of elderly cast members and revolving around death. It doesn't look like a great idea on paper, as you said, but it's surprisingly watchable, isn't it? Not, I t- I'll tell you what I will say. Not every script gets away with using Gary Baldy's as a euphemism for knackers this lightly. 
how many pegs are you going to put on the line here? Well, if I'm allowed to do it in the company of Liz Sladen, there's no slapstick in this episode. Restrained innuendo, and the script never thinks it's smarter than its audience. It's very gentle, it's never depressing, and yet it is completely about internalised regret. That doesn't happen these days. Seven out of nine. Nice. How about yeah. yourself, my good man? Well, I'm on the I'm on the similar line to yourself. Uh, an Edwardian summer day out <clears throat> sees our well-cast characters neck deep in Garibaldi biscuits and unrequited love. Uh, this is just a joy, and like a wonderful dessert wine on a summer evening, should be sipped gently and appreciated. Nice. Nine. Ooh. Yeah. There we go. That makes up for the first half. I don't want to be reminded of that. I don't want any memory of that. <laughs> but the question, on every Undertaker's lips uh-huh. in Edwardian England... Yes, yes. ...is... Written written onto a, a note and drawn pinned onto the inside of a coffin. Funnily enough, yes. Yes. How many steps would it take you to traverse through a cornfield on a summer's afternoon... In order to get a bit of pork pie. Well. Derek Benfield, the Larkins, Peggy Mount. You can put your jigsaw away. Oh, I mean, let's not mess about. Match that if you can. Sailor beware. Peggy Mountain. Is this seat taken? Yes! There we have it, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't wrapped everything up. It is, of course, competition time. It is, it is. And, yes, remember, you can jot your answers down on the official Peggy Mount Calamity Hour answer sheet. Available as a PDF from www.peggymountpod.com. Your question is... As was the fashion at the time, Christopher Beanie's character, Billy, sports a beautifully knitted tank top. How many stripes are on it? There we are. And remember Blackout? That one I do oh. know, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was, you can't enter, though. You can't enter. So, with that... While I go and hunt out my Chopper Squad t-shirt, ready to go to the 240 Robert convention in my local town, Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thanks once again for attending this service of remembrance. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are PeggyMountPod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Five-star ratings are more than welcome on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for this and for our previous and for all of our other episodes. Even the ones that aren't on the main feed. There are some on there that aren't on the main feed. Get them. He's right, you know. And it's as simple as that. It really is. And that wraps up another episode for another week of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. We'll be back in seven days. Don't know what time. It depends what time producer Ken gets out of his scratch. Until then. Keep mounting. Peggy Mount Calamity Hour is a free podcast from iCall Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com. <laughs>
Brilliant.